Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In Matthew, the question of faith or trust in the Lord is not a matter of confession, but action. In chapter 9, two blind men proclaimed their trust in Jesus only to disobey him. In chapter 20, we find the same template, two blind men, But now, with Jerusalem just around the corner, the stakes are much higher. Instead of questioning their trust, Jesus cuts directly to the chase, asking whether or not they submit their will to the will of his Father. Where James and John failed, can two blind beggars fill in? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 345 of the Bible as Literature podcast. It's so important when hearing the New Testament not to impose any assumptions we have, any preconceived notions we have about types of Gospels. Once you say there are synoptic Gospels, and you try to line up columns of text and compare them for historical accuracy, you've already set up a framework that will make it impossible for you to hear what each author is saying. Case in point this morning, Dr. Benton, why are there two parables of two blind men calling out to Jesus for help in the Gospel of Matthew, one in chapter 9 and one in chapter 20? Now, if you're trying to make it fit with Mark and Luke so that you can get to your unified story and find out what really happened, if that's the game you're playing, you're not going to hear what Matthew is saying, what Matthew's specific intent is. You have two examples of the same literary template, and they both function differently. If you're not reading Matthew carefully, it's very easy to think you're just reading the same thing again. Actually, if you're not reading carefully, you may not realize you're reading the same thing again because you already forgot it. I mean, in our head, yeah, yeah, Jesus heals blind people. We know that this happens. Matthew doesn't have Jesus just healing blind people. That's not what this is about, because in Matthew chapter 9, he heals blind people with a very particular result, and here he heals blind men with a very different result. If you're not paying attention, it can be very easy to understand something that's wrong. Whereas if you're reading carefully, something that seems obvious is not nearly as clear. In chapter 9 of Matthew, the blind men ask, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
and he heals them. He allows them to see. And then he says, don't tell anybody about this. And they go out and they blabber to everybody. Here we have a very different result. And the question is not what happens when Jesus heals blind people, but what is the result when Jesus heals blind people? Because obviously being able to see does not solve your problems on its own. It gives you the ability to, but it won't necessarily help you. It reminds me of Romans. The difference between the Jew and the Gentile is not that one acts better than the other. It's that the Jew had the knowledge of the prophecies and of Scripture, and the Gentile didn't. But how one acted did not necessarily come from that. And in fact, somebody who didn't have the written scriptures could act correctly, but someone who did have the written scriptures may not act correctly. Your comment about Romans ultimately is pitting James and John against the two blind men here. On the one hand, within Matthew's narrative, you have this pericope appearing twice, and it raises the questions you've posed. But specifically with respect to those who have heard the proclamation of the cross all along and should know better versus those who have not and do know better, you have an excellent example here in Matthew. Because remember, for the entire chapter, Jesus has been explaining that the first will be last and the last will be first. And those who received the gift, the grace of this wisdom and knowledge, asked mommy to talk to Jesus about getting them a nice job in the kingdom. And we are about to turn the corner here in Matthew towards the crucifixion. And at this pivotal moment, they're asking Jesus for a position of importance after he's been explaining that he himself has to be destroyed. So this is a desperate moment in a way for Jesus because he's done all of this work and he still doesn't have a true follower, not one. So along comes this resurgence of the pericope of the two blind men to fill that void within the story. Because we know from many different examples throughout the New Testament that the Lord will keep working until he finds someone who wants to attend his banquet. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him and two blind men sitting by the side of the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So you have the disciples who have been hearing Jesus for the last 20 chapters. And at the end of all of that training and education, still don't understand that the purpose of everything Jesus has taught them is so that they would follow him to his crucifixion and defeat. And they still can't hear it. Now suddenly you have two blind people, people you would ridicule because they can't walk, because they can't see, who are ready to walk and to follow Jesus to his death. And in his commentary on Matthew, Father Paul Tarazi points out that this act of desperation, of crying out to the son of David, 
demonstrates that they understand the gravity of the situation. They understand what's at stake, and they're begging for mercy, which is the correct response to chapter 20. As you said a moment ago, Father, we can't ignore that this falls right after Jesus's monumental teaching of the last being first and the first being last. And we begin with this strange detail that they left Jericho. Before this, we didn't know that they were in Jericho. It's only upon leaving Jericho that the reader is notified that they were in Jericho. Why this added detail? Well, we have this also in Mark. That could be a reason it was simply imported. But there's also an important aspect of Jericho being the place of Joshua's victory by the hand of God, falling right on the end of the teaching, the last being first and the first being last. Jesus, the other Joshua, don't forget that Jesus is how you say Joshua in Greek, and that's why we have this word, just taught his magisterial teaching about how he's going to be crucified, and this is the indication of his kingship in the kingdom. So he leaves behind this city of Joshua's victory by the hand of God and goes, and as you said, Father, he meets these people who are helpless even useless when it comes to labor, which is mostly farming at this time. What's a blind person supposed to do for farming? So they are destitute as a result of their disability. They are the ones who call out for mercy to this king, to the son of David, as they see the son of David. Now, the son of David, hopefully by this point, the reader understands, has to be understood in terms of Matthew chapter 1, where Jesus is not the son of David in a natural sense, but also in the way that he seeks after the kingdom is not the way that David in the Old Testament sought after the kingdom. So we have to understand Jesus' kingship in a very specific way, in that the last is first and the first is last. And so he brings his mercy first to those who call out to him for mercy. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, But they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So here the crowd is functioning as it does in the other Gospels. And I agree that the mention of the crowd and the mention of Jericho here tie this occurrence of the pericope to the other Gospels, whereas the pericope in chapter 9 is generalized. So there's definitely something different happening in chapter 9 than what is happening here. And in a way, Matthew is using the template of Jericho and the crowds to draw that distinction. We could always go back and visit chapter 9 again and our analysis earlier in this series. But the crowd in this usage represents the mob that would obstruct the Gentiles from hearing what Jesus has to say. This is classic. So not only do those who were with Jesus and were, quote, following Jesus and hearing him all along, not only do they not truly want to follow him to Golgotha, but as a mob, they are obstructing the true followers of Jesus because we are comparing and contrasting those who receive the law and don't act correctly with those 
who didn't have that benefit and act correctly. The two blind men on the side of the road put to shame everyone else who's been with Jesus throughout the story, including the two blind men from the original pericope who did not do what Jesus asked them to do. The crowds are never the good guys in Matthew. We know that. You know, for people who want to convert the multitudes to Christianity, we know where it's going to go. They want their fellow followers to be like them. They don't want the last to be first. They don't want to hear the cries of the least. They don't want the least to be bothering Jesus. They misunderstand Jesus's greatness and they misunderstand the blind men's leastness. The crowds have twisted the teaching and they think that Jesus is the first because he's the most powerful and the blind are the least because they're the least powerful, not understanding that Jesus will be the last and these blind men will be going in right with them. They'll all be at the bottom when it's time to enter into the kingdom and these multitudes who are preventing them just as they prevented the children and the little ones from coming to Jesus. Now they want the blind to stop asking for mercy. I mean, this is the cruelty of the multitudes. They don't want the blind to be asking for mercy. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Here, despite all the efforts of the crowd, the Lord hears the cry of the poor. Nothing can stop the Lord from hearing those who call out to him, who submit to his will, who are willing to follow him in the way that he wants them to follow. And there's only one way to follow somebody. That's what's so great about this example. We're now turning towards Jerusalem. Are you going to follow me? Or are you going to hide in the shadows? Again, there's this basic mechanism in Scripture that the weak, the disenfranchised, the subjugated, the outcast are the ones who are willing to follow Jesus because they have nothing to protect. It's not a credit to the blind men that they want to follow Jesus. It's a fact of their situation. Their situation puts them in the best possible posture to realize their dependence on the teaching and the wisdom of Jesus, to realize that their only option, it's not a choice, their only real option is to follow him to the cross. That's the difficulty of what you said about Romans. Those who have received the law fall in the trap of thinking they are something when they are nothing. They are still no better off than two blind guys on the side of the road, which is why the law was given. The question of what they want is contrasted with what they believe in chapter 9. In chapter 9, there were no crowds preventing them, and Jesus asked them, do they believe that Jesus can do this? Whereas here, the fact that they cried out against the crowds— Against the will of the crowds who would have them not cry out, Jesus simply asked them what they want. They already showed this will. The fact that they went against the will of the crowd to cry out to him already evidently for Jesus counted for something. 
He didn't ask if they trusted in Jesus' ability to do this, his authority to be able to do this. So then it's simply, okay, you believe, you trust that I have this power, what do you want? And so then it was a question of whether their will aligns with Jesus's or not. And this has been a big question all throughout Matthew, which is the will of the Father and aligning with that will. What do you want? What do you will? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. I appreciate you mentioning the Greek in verse 32, Richard. What do you will? He's testing them to see if they will submit to the will of the Father and follow him to the cross. They are submitting because they have no status as two blind people sitting on the side of the road shut out by the crowds. That's why the question that Jesus asks is not a question about their psychology, their emotional state, or what they desire. It's a test to see if they submit to what God desires and what God wants. It's clear that James and John do not. The first two disciples who were presented with the will of the Father. Remember, Jesus sternly warns Peter earlier in Matthew that you didn't say that. You simply repeated the will of my Father. The crucifixion is the will of the Father. James and John rejected the will of the Father. So now we're talking about the will of the Father with respect to two new disciples, do they submit to what he wants in the expression of what they want? Matthew sets up this experiment. Two sets of blind people, both of them encounter Jesus and ask for the mercy of the Son of David. In the first one, they don't say what they want. Jesus just asks, do you believe Do you trust that I can do this? And they said, yes. And he said, according to your trust, let it happen. And so they were cured, but then they went and they blabbered, even though Jesus said, don't go blabbering. Here, there is no question of trust or faith other than the fact that they went against the crowds, which there was no crowd in the previous example in chapter 9. The question is not just, do you trust Jesus? The question is, do you trust the Jesus in your mind, or do you trust the Jesus that Jesus talks about? When you say that Jesus is able, that Jesus has the authority, are you understanding authority according to what the human king has, or do you understand the authority according to what God's anointed has and how he demonstrates this authority and this strength and this ability. So we can have faith. We can trust in God. But is it the God? Because I can trust in Baal too, and I have faith. And just because I call Baal Jesus doesn't mean he's not Baal. It means that I did not see Jesus. I was looking at Jesus But I saw Baal in my mind, and I trusted in Baal. Do I trust in the Jesus who is the last because he is the first, and the first shall be last, and he is on his way to Jerusalem so that he will be inaugurated as king on the cross?
Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. So they did regain their sight, and now they are using the lamp of the eye, which is now informed by the instruction and the wisdom of Jesus. They are using it to walk correctly upon the path. In Matthew, the gospel of the millstone, you can become an obstruction to yourself on the path. In Matthew, the gospel of the lamp of the eye in the Sermon on the Mount, you can injure yourself or others if the light in your eye is darkness. It's not enough to hear Scripture and gain sight if you then still choose to walk according to your own desires. They are hearing Scripture from Jesus, and their eyes are filled with light, and they walk according to the precepts of that light, unlike James and John. They are the replacements. This is a two-for-two exchange. Jesus now, as he faces Golgotha, is abandoning James and John and picking up two new disciples who will do what he says. More importantly, who, with Jesus, will submit and do what the Father says. And doing what the Father says, this comes from this word, which is interesting because I've seen this word translated as recover sight or receive sight, and it's what happened to them. It says, anevlipsan, which can also be translated as look up. When Jesus looked up and then broke bread, it uses this verb. They looked up to Jesus, and this was the gift that Jesus gave to them. They, as you said, Father, aligned their will to his, not just with their hearts, or even with their words, as they did in chapter 9, but they did with their feet, and they walked after Jesus, and they followed Jesus, after Jesus has mentioned over and over again what that path is going to look like and where that path is going to end up. So often, Richard, when people preach on this passage, and they see the question that Jesus asks, what do you want? It devolves into a discussion of psychology and choice, and they will go on and on about the importance of wanting to be healed. That is a complete misreading of this passage. Again, I want to be clear. What's at stake is not the psychological state of the victim. That is not a subject for the New Testament. What's at stake is not the psychological or emotional state of the disciple. It doesn't matter. I'm not saying that psychology doesn't matter. I'm saying it doesn't matter here. The question in Matthew chapter 20 is the will of God, which is the crucifixion. If you're hearing the Greek, you will hear the connection with will because it's the same term. In English, you would never think that there's an explicit connection between desire and want and will, which is an imperative from the throne. They replace James and John 
because they submit to the will of the Father instead of jockeying for what they want. If he is asking what they want, he's asking them, do I have to bear with you too, or are you on the same page as me? Matthew hints at this difference because in chapter 9, the result of Jesus's action was that their eyes were opened. Here, they received sight or they looked up. They ultimately looked up to Jesus and they reflected this in the feet that walked the path by not walking in their own direction to go blabber, but they followed Jesus on the very difficult path that would show the first becoming the last and the last becoming the first. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.